right, man. Well, I'm ready for you. Let's, yeah. let's do this. Happy to be here today. Yeah, man. Welcome to the Returns Mandatory Podcast. Uh, I've been wanting to have you on here for a while, but, you know, with uh, everything going on this year, it's been a little bit hard to get things done. Yeah, definitely. Understand that. <laughs> so, um, if I remember right, you're uh, not only a 14er finisher, but you've done a bunch of pretty difficult 13ers as well. I'm getting pretty close on the centennial tier. I'm at about 80 of 100 right now. And my goal with the Centennials was to do them the same way I did the 14ers and is the standard way to do the 14ers. I thought it would be really neat if I was able to do it with no gear or anything like that, just my own two feet, you know, and uh, just uh, determination and all that kind of stuff. So I actually have gone on and done Vestal, Jagged, Dallas, and uh, Tea Kettle all without ropes now, not because it was a, uh, you know, some big sort of uh, goal out of bravado or anything like that. It just seemed like it was very, very attainable for me and, and very, very achievable because I'm very comfortable off of rope. So, you know, I've had some very intense adventures on all of those peaks. So I'm uh, very glad to have those behind me. And from here, it should be pretty smooth sailing through the rest of them. I think Pigeon is the only difficult one I have, and that's uh, fourth class. So I can uh, kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel now. Um, so with Vestal Peak, what, how, how was that? I mean, I've always been curious about getting back into that region. Did you end up taking the train or did, were you able to find a way around the train? So with that one, I'd, uh, done the train once for Chicago Basin and, you know, it's, it's a good experience. I'm, you know, I don't knock the, knock the train at all, but. The way I saw it, the process of starting my own business. So, you know, obviously I needed to put as much of my finances as possible towards that. So I figured, why not get paid, you know, $100 to do some extra walking, you know, save that money on the train ticket. So that's kind of how I looked. It was a very, very brutal hike out because the way you have to hike in is via Mollus Pass. And that starts off with about a 2,000 foot drop right off the bat. So, you know, the whole way you're hiking in, it's like, I think something like 22 miles around the trip. You know, the thing you're thinking about is having to reascend that on the way out. You know, I was just doing it one, one night overnight and then not the next day. So I was definitely dreading that the whole time. But the actual climb of Vestal went very, very good, very smooth. Uh, it was actually a lot more enjoyable even than I figured. Know, but that's that's kind of the way to do those kind of things when you're doing the you know it's like three pitches of two class five a bunch of four and quite a bit of three and you know all that kind of stuff so you know you gotcha. just have to put every every bit of your focus into every move you know you can't uh can't afford to worry about exposure but unrelated to best themselves or any of that you just need to stay calm cool collected and i found it actually surprisingly easy on vestal largely because of the good rock quality. It's a solid block of quartzite, so that makes it. It was tempting to, you know, at least uh, meet you halfway or you come over here considering you just live in fluorescent. Well, actually, I live in uh, Howard now near Salida. I had recently moved. So. Oh, okay. Gotcha. How long have you been there? Yeah. 
uh, only about four months or so. I'm uh, actually living at the base of the Northern Sangre de Cristos right now. So I got nice views of the Twin Sisters, Bushnell Peak, and pretty much right up against them here at about 8,500 feet. So it's it's nice, but one of the things that kind of sucks about it is only having access to satellite internet. So it's not always the most reliable, but typically gets the job done. Understandable. Uh, yeah, I just uh, I appreciate you being uh, persistent. You know, I know a lot of the technical difficulties can be frustrating, but uh, it is what it is. Um, so with Vestal Peak, I'm happy um, to be here. You, I'm guessing you took Wham Ridge. I did take Wham Ridge, and uh, that was a route I had wanted to do for quite a few years. I had eyed it from several different vantages, and it's just one of those peaks that's very aesthetically pleasing. You know, it's one of those you look at. It's like a giant tidal wave cresting above you. So it just kind of, it kind of called me. And even before I had any of the free solo experience or any of that kind of stuff, I knew that one day I definitely wanted to make a run at that one way or another. And as a matter of fact, it's probably became just about my favorite peak in Colorado. So Capital might be the king of the 14ers, but hey, there's a lot more 13ers. I'd say Dustin's probably the king of the 13ers, in my opinion. For somebody that's finished the 14ers and has been working on some of the harder 13ers, um, where would you rank capital? Would there be 13ers above it? Most definitely. I think the, the YDS scale fails to do is put in the context of danger or anything like that. They clearly factor in you know, the hardest difficulty of moves and all that kind of stuff. And while Capital Peak is only class four, it's still a very serious undertaking and just a little bit of straying off route and you can be in some very serious trouble. So capital itself is a huge undertaking regardless of the difficulty of moves or anything, but there's quite a few 13ers that eclipse it both in the range of moves as well as the amount of danger and exposure to. But Capital Peak is a great start. You know, that's definitely like a prerequisite to getting into at least free soloing some of the harder 13ers. Which one is that? Dow's the 13er. Um, oh, Dallas? Dallas, okay. Um, I've heard that when you get to the top of that one, you could rappel down like a hole. Yeah, so that one actually does have opportunity for a free-falling rappel. And even on a lot of trad routes and stuff, that's that's kind of rare. You get an opportunity to, to do that there. So I guess the main pitch that people take is a 5-3 line to the top. And believe it or not, I was really thinking Dallas was going to be the most intimidating because it has a very serious radiation in Colorado. Really know of its, uh, its danger level and that sort of thing. But I was surprised to see, you know, after the first uh, crux, if you will, the first 5-3 smooth slab or whatever, is with some nice ledgy breaks, and it actually gives uh, you a second to cool down from the exposure before continuing on and doing it again. So breaking it up like that, Dallas might have even have been the easiest of the four fifth class routes like that to do. But yeah, for anybody who's doing it with ropes, obviously I didn't get to do this because I was solo, but man, that would be, I'm sure it's an absolute blast repelling descending in there. And it actually does take you into a little cave system, which I did not get to see. But uh, yeah, no, I've, I've heard many, many good things about that. So it's a very, very fun route. It's a great peak. It treated me great. And, Gotcha. That was, uh, that was one of my better days in the mountains. Did you uh, did you do Vestal solo as well? I did. Yeah, that one uh, kind of came at a 
weird time in my life with, you know, starting the business and that sort of thing. So I just kind of took off on a whim with that. And, you know, it was a, it was a really great experience. As a matter of fact, I camped at these beaver ponds. Most people go into Vessel Basin to pack, but I was getting kind of a late start and met some people from Kansas or whatever who were packing up there too. And I went over and hung out with them in their camp and they're cooking up all sorts of delicious things as opposed to my cliff bars and beef jerky. So it was, uh, it was welcome. It was nice to be able to chill with some people before doing something big epic like that. And then first thing in the morning, set off again and solo the rest of the day. Ended up getting back probably to my car around 2 a.m. So I was having to climb up that 2,000 feet in the dark. You know, it was pitch black. And after every switchback, I kept thinking, okay, I remember this one. This is the last one. This is the last one that seemed to go on forever. When I got close to the cars, I ended up actually taking a horse trail because I couldn't see anything instead of the main trail that would have gone to my vehicle. So I ended up at some campground in the middle of the nowhere and had to probably walk around for an extra two hours, totally dehydrated and delirious, trying to figure out where I'm going. So <laughs> that was not my proudest moment, mountaineering. Oh, but it's to be expected if you spend any amount of time in the mountains. <laughs> I know I've had it my fair share. Most definitely. Um, so you said you yeah, started I mean, your own uh, business? Yeah, yeah, actually running a, a food truck here in Salida, Colorado, right now, doing gourmet burritos and barbecue. So, you know, I've, this is kind of what I've been working towards the last several years, being able to own my own business and, you know, kind of be on my own accord and everything. And this is a very centralized location around here for mountaineering. You know, you're from the Tala County, so we had it better than a lot of people able to drive to the mountains only two hours away and that sort of thing you know now i'm 30 minutes from some of the sawatch peaks so you know it really doesn't get a lot better than this for climbing oh absolutely yeah, absolutely. yeah i do a couple deliveries out there actually um there's a lot of big grows out there <laughs> nice yeah definitely so um, when you um, when you go on these adventures solo, is it because you can't find a hiking partner, or do you just prefer being alone? Does it do something for you? So being solo definitely does do something for me. I wouldn't say that it's uh, you know, I'm not on any kind of goal to do things solo or anything like that. No knock on anybody who is, but it's more or less uh, you know, I really do like the immersion in wilderness, you know, being able to sit and being totally present and of what's going on, my surroundings and just really feeling like a part of the scene, you know, part of the reason I like to do what I like to do is because of, you know, the big goals, the challenges and, you know, the times that I feel like make you into a, a, a better human being. But a big part of it's also just being out there in the wilderness and really just uh, taking it all in now, if I'm doing winter peaks or anything like that, I always try to find a partner, mostly because a lot of people close to me really worry about soloing in the winter. You know, they don't even the big spicy peaks in the summer, they don't really worry about. But I've been pressured a lot by people in the last year or so, so I'm trying to at least for them do that. And plus in the winter, you know, a lot, lot more stuff can go wrong. And it really is smart to climb with a partner in those kind of situations and learn the team skills for you know, big international objectives and that sort of thing. But summer centennials, occasionally I invite people, occasionally I don't. But at the same time, when I do want to partner for a lot of stuff, I do like 
you know, going and free soloing vessel, for instance. Well, I mean, there's, there's a whole lot of people that, you know, I know a whole lot of people, but most of them are still working through the 14ers or they've already done all, all the centennials or, you know, I find myself in kind of a weird middle ground that I don't, my goals don't align with as many people currently as they used to, I guess. Gotcha. So when you were doing the 14ers, did you find yourself checking off the centennials as you went? Or is that something that you went back for? Uh, I would have been a lot smarter had I been you know, obviously on that one, it's only a hop, skip, and a jump from Calabria, and I don't want to pay $150 twice. So I just went off in a tagged red. But yeah, like uh, peaks like Hoerfano, man, I wish I would have got Hoerfano because now I have to, you know, go back and drive two hours for it and do all that when I could have just done it in probably 45 minutes or so, maybe an hour from Lindsay. So that definitely would have been a smarter way to do it. And I would definitely advise... Uh, anybody who might be listening to this working through the 14ers should just go ahead and hit those centennials because you'll get done with the 14ers and as great of a feeling as it will be in that sort of thing, you'll definitely be finding yourself thinking what's next. Or if you're anything like me, always looking for the next adventure and that kind of thing, you know, those of us who have a insatiable thirst for adventure, you're going to find yourself wanting that next list. And a lot of people don't necessarily like list taking and that sort of thing, but I definitely defend it because it provides a direction, you know, to do the things I want to do, you know, to give me like a itinerary, so to speak. You know, I go see this, I go see that. Like I want to see every spur into Colorado, not just the hardcore intense class four or five and then the winter stuff and all that, you know, even summer class two peaks, it's a new part of Colorado, you know? So for somebody who likes, like, who's like me, who just wants to keep seeing new things and exploring, I feel like the centennial list is a natural progression from the 14 year list. I gotcha. Yeah. I, um, there, I know a lot of different people have been starting podcasts and a lot of people talk about the flow zone. Um, I just feel like it's easier to achieve when you're by yourself and i hear the argument yeah i hear the argument on the other side you know you should always have a partner um you know all you know i hear what they're saying i'm not trying to dismiss it but the times that i've been soloing and harder stuff like i could think back to when i did little bear to blanca by myself there was just such like it, what people describe about the flow zone, that is what I was in because I wasn't, I wasn't having to look behind me or look in front of me or communicate where to put your hand or foot. You know, I wasn't worried about the other person succeeding or not succeeding. It was all in my hands. And to be able to do that, I feel like time just basically slowed down. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. And that is a big part of the reason that why on a lot of the harder peaks and stuff, you know, I would almost say some of them are safer without a partner because also you don't have to worry about knocking a rock down on your partner's head when you're up there. And, you know, I feel like flow state, that's a very good term for, you know, different presence, mindfulness, flow state, you know, but it's all, it's all pretty much the same thing. And, that's really what it comes down to with the hard stuff. You know, you don't have to start climbing 512 in order to go out and free solo a peak like Bestel or something like that. You just really have to be able to enter that state 
have all the belief in yourself in the world and in, know, in knowing that as long as the conditions align and allow for it, that you will be able to successfully and safely go up and down. And when you're in that mentality, more safe too, because you almost have extra awareness, extra vigilance. You can feel that a rock might be loose or that a hold might be loose before it is. It's kind of a hard thing. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, if, if somebody hasn't experienced it. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like um, a lot of times when you're standing right next to the peak, it tends to be a little bit more intimidating. And then you walk a little bit closer and the route opens up and you understand what the next move is. Um, if you're to, like the one that comes to mind is uh, Ellingwood Point. Um, from a distance, it looks a little bit intimidating with that sheer drop off on the other side and that notch that you have to, uh, avoid and all the loose rocks. But really it's one of those mountains that taught me, you know, you're getting a bunch of fear flooded into your head, but the closer you get, you realize that people have been there before you, you're going to find Cairns, you're going to find the worn path um i don't know what do you have to say about that yeah i'd say uh for sure you know one one that i think of when i think of that is like the crestone traverse when you're on crestone peak and you're looking over at the needle you're like that's class four are you serious (laughs) but then once you get nose to nose with it it looks a lot more reasonable and you know you get to really see it open up you know views from a distance very often distort things you know and especially with the approaching the crux routes just looks so much more difficult but i have seen there were some times on like rock climbing routes you know sometimes you see like a low angle slab then you get on it and you're like wow there is no holds anywhere on this but yeah as for mountains and the 14ers and all that they pretty much always look more intimidating from a distance gotcha yeah when i had first i think you might have been the first person to turn me on to vestal actually um I think it was a post that you had made on the 14ers page. And I thought to myself, I've never seen a summit that beautiful or like that. Oh, breathtaking. Yeah, de- definitely. I mean, it's, it's definitely one of the mountains in the lake for sure. Was that before, uh, me and you ended up this year or was that? After? Oh, I think that might've been, Oh, you know what? That's a good question. I don't know. But uh, yeah, that was that was actually pretty cool meeting up with you guys, <laughs> even though one of your guys was having a bad day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, everybody occasionally is just uh, not feeling it on any certain day or whatever. But we didn't expect to run into anybody else up there. You know, we were sounded like they're making the weather out to be a little worse than it was. But that ended up being a beautiful day, and glad to see you got your summit. Yeah, I mean, when I got up there, I don't know how it was for you, but there was zero wind. Oh, yeah. No, it had definitely called for some wind and some snow the night before. And actually, on my drive there, I ended up driving through almost a blizzard in the Salida area. And I was just thinking, man, I'm going to get there and there's going to be a foot of fresh snow at the parking lot. And we're going to have to break all this trail. And then I get there and looks like maybe a half inch fell the night before. So, yeah, sometimes you just got to show to know. It's kind of a cliche in the community, but it's a very, very true one. 
It is very much. And I think a lot of people on the 14ers page are looking for the people who uh, show, you know, itching and scratching for that, that beta. Oh, yeah, yeah. i got to always put those conditions reports up for everybody. So the next person is uh, safer than you were when you went. Yeah, that was that's actually something that um, that's one of my goals for this year is to be getting into trail reports. Um, I don't know if you have any like stories to tell about the importance of trail reports, but it's something that I haven't really been into. Like I have a peak bagger app and so I log that on there and, you know, I do like the basic things, tick it off. But, um, yeah, basically setting it up for the next person to climb, you know, that wasn't something that really registered. Um, I was just type focused on the next. Yeah, that's why uh, I. I always try to give people as much beta as I can. Like I like to, you know, tell my story of the trip or whatever, but at the same time, like I always make sure to lace in good amounts of beta or even like, not like, yeah, you will encounter this on this section, but it's like, Hey, you know, the best way to deal with the exposure on this. And I always, I always drill the presence, the mindfulness, all of that home and all of my reports. Like when you get here, might be, you know, you might be looking over the cliff, seeing a huge drop off and might be, you know, a thousand feet of air under you, but breath just look at your next hold don't look down and uh, put all your focus into your moves and but i think it is really important for people to give that advice or whatever to the next person going you know i definitely think that's a a very good practice you know with conditions reports as well whenever you get done with like a winter 14er for say and you know just so everybody knows what they're going into nobody's going in blind you know, this day and age, we have all of these resources at our disposal. And I think that it's good that we're getting more resources to use to keep people safe in the mountains. Now, there's definitely some purists who say that's, you know, a bad thing. It's bad for the sport. You know, people don't have to think for themselves, this and that. But I think anything that makes less people, you know, die in the mountains while they're out doing big epic things or whatever, I think that's pretty much always going to be a good thing. And it's up to the individual to decide what they want to use and not use but that information should definitely be available to the public in my opinion yeah and i also feel like the purists are really the ones that kind of drift towards the top um, i really feel like it's a community that is very very good at what they do so they're comfortable with being a purist but people just experimenting trying to get you know out of their house trying to start a new hobby I think that some of these technologies we have is the best thing that they have for them. Definitely. It's, it's up to each individual to decide whether they want to be a purist or not. It's not something that they should try to make on the community. And the same is true with like rock climbing crags and stuff like that. You know, a lot of people say certain areas are, you know, you're not allowed to publish any kind of beta at all or let people even know the ratings of routes or that kind of thing. And that's something I don't understand because if somebody, you know, gets on a, say, a trad line who, you know, it looks easier from the bottom than it does up there. If they're on something like, oh, this looks 5'8", I can leap 5'8 trad and gets into, you know, some 5'10", and, you know, risk whipping on gear, having to leave gear behind. Definitely think the more information out there, the better. You know, and same same's true with, like, oxygen and all that. I think people are free to say that, 
you know, they don't think a 8,000 meter peak counts if you use oxygen. But the way I see it is like wearing Gore-Tex as opposed to what Sir Edmund Hillary wore. You know, he, he was probably wearing who knows what furs and everything like that. And today we have Gore-Tex, we have down, we have all these nice things. And if he had that at his disposal, he definitely would have been using that, you know, so that's, I kind of see it all related. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I, I will do my research, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll watch my YouTube videos and really get a feel from the area. I'll look at fat, Gaia, stuff like that, or Cal Topo. Um, but when I'm out there, you know, like I don't really use my technology unless I have to, but to have that knowledge in your head, I just, I don't under, I guess I don't understand the purest state of mind when you're really, um, in my opinion, you're just, you're doing, you're doing your work to stay alive and go on your next adventure. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. With GPS and all that, I like to. I like to leave waypoints and stuff if I'm like hiking in winter and feel like the trench might be blown over or the snow might come or that kind of thing. But other than that, no, I, I do a lot of research research before and I would encourage people to always read trip reports and research the mountain you're climbing and all that so you have the navigation and you know, the landmarks in your head. But I actually find like if you do that amount of research, you don't need GPS. You don't need to be basically staring at a screen walking up like, oh, okay, I go here and I go here and I go here know the landmarks, know all that in your head, and that way you can just leave the phone, leave all that stuff in your pocket, and you can just enjoy the day. Because that's what it's about. I mean, it's it's about enjoying yourself. And, you know, some people like me get enjoyment out of doing spicy stuff, and some people, you know, get the same amount of enjoyment just going and sitting by an alpine lake. And, you know, some of us see both of them as amazing and try to, you know, get both of them out of each trip. So, you know, it's really up to the individual to figure out what they want out of the mountains. And whatever it is they want, they can get up in the mountains. It's, it's a very it's a very special place, and we're all very blessed to live here in Colorado. Absolutely. Uh, do you have any standout moments for wildlife? Absolutely. So, uh, I have a trip report out on uh, 14ers.com about tea kettle and on tea kettle me and a partner I was running with Ian Wright this was an interesting day this was not a typical day in the mountains for us at all totally totally blue forecast for like seven days in a row when you see like consecutive bluebird days in the forecast if to assume it's going to be a pretty pleasant condition wind or whatever. Like if there's a day of sunshine interlaced between two storms or something, sometimes I'm step- skeptical or whatever, but it was during like an optimal period in like September. So we decided to start at 11 a.m. because I got off work at like 11 p.m., you know, before I owned my own business. And then Ian had to drive down and meet up with me. We didn't end up getting to, we camped in Horn Rocks and Gunnison. We didn't get there till like three in the morning. It was like super, super late. And we ended up, uh, setting up camp woke up at like eight we actually went to a restaurant and got breakfast yeah i haven't mentioned that a whole lot but uh yeah either way you know it it was a very short amount of game almost right up to where we jumped off the road you know we were feeling pretty confident you know ian had his rope and rack and all that i actually think we did a little repelling before we even left our rocks you know just for kicks i suppose but uh 
we go. We speed up the horrible, horrible talus slope. And I mean, it's just, it's awful. Like, people talk about the 2,800 feet of sun. This is substantially worse than that. To the point of it's super, super dangerous. Like, despite free soloing the summit tower, the most dangerous climbing we did that day was climbing up that talus slope. It was unreal. But we get to the top of that, you know, everything else is going super, super smooth. And we get to tea cuddle. We look at that. We're like, dude, we got this. You know, uh, I go ahead and speed up the route. No issues whatsoever. Ian comes up even faster than I did it right behind me, making it look super easy. The down climb is a little weird. Dropping into the free chimney was definitely a very weird move. And you kind of have to rely on the pressure on the foothold that you can't see. So you're really testing it hard. You're like, oh, I think this is going to be a good one. And you know, keep putting that pressure on it. And then once you're actually committed to dropping in, then it's just kind of, you know, James Bond shimmying down it. So that went easy. And, you know, Ian had way easier of a time coming down it than I even did. He just dropped right in and, you know, no problem at all. So then we're feeling all confident, strong and everything. So we decided to go do coffee pot, go solo coffee pot, which is like, it's a really easy solo considering you can wedge your body position into this chimney and it's it felt safe like if you started to slip you could get good counter pressure it wasn't that sketchy but you know with those two right there like boom boom you know i'd had a little uh mountain crest for a long time so i'm like dude katasi's right there and it was just looking ridiculous like from coffee pot it looks like a fortress like it's looks like it would be impenetrable 512 trad on all sides just to summit it which it's only class two plus mountain so you know obviously that isn't the case but we just kept wrapping around wrapping around we spied our at least the one roach alluded to is just you know talking about an obvious gully somewhere down there and we're like okay that's our gully gully cool let's go so it just kept the trail or i shouldn't say trail it's more like a faint wake of a footsteps through like super super loose talus but we're going around just wrapping around the mountain walk Kind of like it's almost luring us in, like, oh, yeah, just a little bit further, just a little bit further. So it was kind of ominous feeling, like being jawed in by mountain. But, hey, we were so close to summiting, it was getting really dark. But we're like, dude, we got this. We pretty much, there's there's no reason not to do it. We'll find the goalie, whatever. We get to the top as the sun is, like, almost totally down. You know, sign the register and start working our way down. Well, we did see an area that we might be a quicker way to get back down to the the trail or whatever, which was kind of stupid. That was definitely a mistake, something I look back on. I'm like, yeah, that wasn't the wisest thing I've ever decided to do. But either way, before we got too committed into that too far down, we said, no, no, let's let's backtrack. Let's be safe. It probably looks like it would still go, but it didn't look quite as good as it did. So we had to backtrack. And finally, we get back down to the slopes of the top. But we could not find that little wake of footsteps uh, we came in on. We could not find it whatsoever. And we were just climbing on the loosest, loosest slopes I could imagine at night. And my headlamp battery just died. So I'm out here with my phone flashlight like, trying to walk. And he's we're not walking above each other because we're just triggering huge, huge, chaotic rock slides. Like anything below us would have been certainly dead, no question. I mean, just huge, huge rock slides. It was really, really intense. And finally, we get back to the gully. Or at least we think is the goalie they mentioned. It was definitely the goalie we spied earlier. But we go down that and it ended up just being just a total shit show. I don't know if there was easier ways in the light we could have seen, but 
remember at one point my ankle got stuck in a bunch of rocks and I took a fall and accidentally threw my phone like 50 yards or whatever. I was able to find it again because of the flashlight you know, shining through some rocks faintly. But I mean, we were just getting our asses kicked, man. And like, we, we were both starting to get a little bit of altitude sickness because we had been above treeline for a long, long time. Plus, we were trying to climb aggressive and fast the whole way because we knew that daylight wasn't on our side. But, I mean, it was, you know, both of us were feeling we were dragging pretty hard. And the gully that we decided to take ended up just totally cliffing out into horrible, horrible, like you would absolutely die if you tried to go down that smooth, smooth rock with ball bearing scree you know, old waterfall and all that. So, you know, we look for another goal and like we climbed over a bunch of crazy, gnarly San Juan garbage rock to find another goalie. And of course that goalie was no better. So we had to climb out of that one. This went on like four or five times. And finally we're both, we're both wearing down. We're trying to figure like, Hey, is this something? Do we just need to pull out our emergency survival bits and sleep till the morning when we can see this shit? Or, you know, we're all really factoring those things into mind. So Ian's like, no, man. He's just like, I really think we need to get out of here. So I was like, all right. I spied one more ledge way the heck above us, like 600 feet above us further than we've gone up. And it looked like on the other side of that was grassy slope. So I'm like, oh, man. I was like, this is, this is, we need to do this. We need to put all of our effort into this. And if this doesn't go well, then we'll probably just have to be the light to be able to get out of that situation. You know, he agrees. I'm going, and all of a sudden it opens up, looks really good. So I'm like, hey, man, we're here. And we're both excited, despite being, you know, tired as heck. And we almost get down to the cliff down before, and Ian takes a bad fall. He takes a bad fall, lands on his knee, looks really, really painful. And he gets up, and he's kind of limping, and it, it didn't look good. But I'm like, you know, man, we're like, the road's like right there, you know, just a little my car and all that. It's right about that time. Right after that fall, keep in mind, Ian's the only one with the so the line went out. We're walking towards the road, and all of a sudden, we see these lights. And it looked like it was a little off the road, which is kind of weird. And we were talking, we're like, is somebody trying to alpine start this? Or maybe they're trying to do snuffles and they're lost? Or we're literally, like, joking about it or whatever, like, totally delirious. <laughs> but all of a sudden, it turned pretty serious when Ian looks over at his headlamp for a second, I notice his headlamp is asphyxiated for a second. He just paused. So I look at oh, he's looking at those lights are coming towards us. And one is significantly higher than the other two. So at that point, we both immediately, we don't even need to say what it is. We know it's Mount Mont. And he we almost like halfway giggled for a second or laughed like, wow, this is fitting. But I remember looking at him, I said, are you afraid? He said, nope. Are you? I said, nope. <laughs> Not with what we just went through. So we just started making noise, yelling. We went on the aggressive, and we were both, like, almost angry at the mountain lions. Like, after everything we just went through and survived, mountain lions, really? Like, mountain lions are going to try us? Like, I just wanted to whack one on the head. Oh, at that point, you know, obviously, that wasn't, you know, I just wanted to get out of there alive, really, but, you know. It, it felt like that. So we were throwing rocks, throwing rocks, making noises, waving our trekking poles around like they were swords or something, you know, and like being as confrontational as we can because they've been watching us. They've seen that we're, you know, not in good shape. I'm sure they've been watching us for a long time. 
really, really broad base and all around with bandages. And I'm sure at that point they made the strategic decision that we could end up as food. So we didn't, you know, we weren't just like, oh, let's give them space to leave us alone or, oh, let's any of that shit. We were like, we know we're in a confrontation. We need to treat it like a true encounter. So a little bit later of throwing rocks and that kind of stuff, they kept coming towards us for a while. Finally, behind a tree, the bigger one, the mom, and, you know, we assume the other two follow suit. So we're still walking towards the road in kind of a diagonal way. We can't go straight ahead because there's mountain lines straight ahead. And he looks behind us. And fortunately, we were probably 30 yards behind us, literally flanking us. He glances forth to grab another rock or whatever and illuminates another one right there. They were literally flanking us like raptors in Jurassic Park. Literally, we don't, we still don't know if they were really, really going to try to make a move on us or if they were just practicing tr- strategic hunting patterns. Since it was a mom and cubs, we figured she might have just been teaching them you know, how to, how to hunt or whatever. But I'm quite sure that if, uh, maybe if we had stayed the night up there, we might've just been sitting targets with our necks exposed all asleep and everything might've gotten eaten. So who knows how that would have ended. But finally we get on the road and we're able to actually keep good progress. And like, you know, Ian's looking back and, you know, I'm walking forward, looking around at the bushes and everything. And we're just like super happy. So we probably had to walk about a half mile, but right when we're to my car, he shines his lights and literally sees one down the road from us. So they were following us that whole way. So had we not had a nice armored little sheltered vehicle, I'm not even sure how that encounter would have turned out because it knew we were had seen this fall count countless times. Like they knew something was up there. So it was it was a really intense encounter. And right after that, my Jeep decided to not start for like four tries in a row. So we were like, come on, man. But finally it got going and Man, we were we were happy to be out of there. <laughs> oh, I bet, man. Yeah, I I don't think I've ever really seen a mountain lion, but I've I don't know. I've I've done a lot of uh, deep sea adventures, like uh, snorkeling and scuba diving with spear guns. And there's this feeling you get when a shark is following you, and I've definitely had that feeling in the mountains a few times, and at the at the like speed at which it was following me and just how 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 you were describing it, how tactical it was like i feel like i've been followed yeah. by mountain lions a few times <laughs> you almost for sure have you know people always say like oh you'll never see one or oh they're like ghosts or whatever it's like all right well there's estimated like four to six thousand of them in colorado they're not invisible like you know if you spend enough time in the mountains you're gonna get followed by a mountain lion you know whether whether you know it or not you're gonna gonna get followed by one and they're very curious creatures you know? and i think that's initially why we drew their attention and it probably was in the process of watching us being curious that they started thinking huh maybe these guys actually could turn into food but my other encounter with mountain lions was on San Luis, and that was way different than this one. That was actually kind of a fun thing. I walked away like, oh, I saw a mountain lion. That was cool. And I, wow, I escaped in my life. But I went uh, with one of my friends and his son, and they kind of wanted me to guide them up, I guess. You know, they weren't too experienced to hikers, so I was happy to do that. And on the way down, I was like, oh, I want to go climb that uh, point over there. It's like point twelve, four fifty, something like that. It's like class four. It's pretty easy, but it's kind of a dorsal thing looking peak. 
So I was like, yeah, I'm going to go off and do that. And you guys can, you know, they're, they're just uh, telling me, they're like, yeah, we're going to take the hike out. Like, go off, you do that. I'm like, all right, cool, cool, cool. So I started walking up towards it. And I started feeling uh, really paranoid for no reason, which I thought was really weird. I'm like looking at this. I'm like, this is only class four. Why is this, why is this getting in my head right now? I'm walking through these thick willows, and right when I get up to the base of the thing, I just see this orange figure shoot up the rock. It was the rock band was literally 150 feet tall. This thing was at the bottom, and it was at the top in like five seconds. I mean, literally, it was bounding like 10, 15 feet at a time. Just boom, 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 boom. And I'm like not processing what it is. I'm just sitting here watching this thing blow up the truck. Like holy crap! And all of a sudden, I see it do that classic like, wide cat stitch crouch out all wide and get real low and look at you. So I do that and I'm like, oh God, that's a mountain lion. So immediately like keep my eyes on it, backtracking through these thick willows. I lose sight of it. So as soon as I lost sight of it, I'm like hitting the willows behind me as they walk back, just like making sure it's not like right there or something. And I ended up waiting for my friend and his son. His son was fairly young. So I at least wanted to, you know, let them know that there was a mountain lion like right there. They weren't too far behind me. Right then another guy, community comes walking up he was there the same day he was there with this little cork and he's got this cute little corky named socks and he's walking up right i literally just saw a mountain lion there 10 minutes ago like you need to get your dog and get your dog out of here because it's going to see that thing is nice little nice little snack for you and he didn't even believe me he's like oh there's no you probably saw a fox I'm like oh dude foxes don't do that but he's sitting there for a second looking at the rock like you know, not expecting to see anything, thinking I'm just full of shit or whatever. And right at that moment, it bounds between two giant rock pillars or whatever. <laughs> he picks up his little dog, and he's like a football holding it in his hand, just sprinting back down to the truck like a running bear. Yeah, like a running back going for a touchdown or something like that. It was, it was pretty funny to watch, but at least he got the little dog out of it. So it's, that was good. But yeah, that was a much more tame encounter, and I just saw the mountain lion bound around for maybe 10 more minutes or something like that, and then I didn't see it again for a while. And of course, when my friends got up there, they were all like, oh, where's the mountain lion? And we all sat there for 20 minutes and didn't see it again, so they still probably think I'm full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> it, was a good, it was a good time, man. That was, that was a pleasant encounter. Gotcha. So, um, have you ever been in the mountain where you surprised yourself where you were caught in a bad situation and a next level of thinking and just endurance kicks in where you're just like complete survival i did feel well definitely felt like that on season as far as full survival but there have been a lot of times where I've gotten uh, more than I bargained for from conditions or whatever. And one that comes to mind would be Dyer's fourth class to West Ridge. I was doing it on my birthday, which is August 19th. And that was, you know, two, three years ago. And I just bought these new approaches. I never tried any shoes before and I was looking forward to using them. And, you know, it said there might be a little bit of weather overnight or something like that. But I woke up to snow going on and, it looked a little weird, like there was snow in certain areas, certain areas looked dry, and it was all covered in clouds and wind, really, really cold, very unusual for that time of year. Like, it was kind of, I'd say, late September, October type of weather. But I was looking up there, I was like, well, this is my birthday, I'm still going to check it out. It don't look too bad. Start walking up and realize that 
almost every rock is coated in a thin layer in bird glass. And at that point, my approach shoes started feeling like clown shoes. Picture trying to do mountaineering in clown shoes. That's how I felt like on all those slick rocks just sliding all over the place. I was like, it's ridiculous. But then once I hit like the ridge proper, you know, it was a, a little more dry. And actually, it was a lot more dry. There was only just a tiny little bird glass here and there. And the clouds are supposed to burn off as the day went on. So I was like, well, you know, the sun will probably come out and melt this stuff. And, you know, if it doesn't, it won't be hard to down climb this or whatever. And it wasn't, except I ended up going a little too ridge proper. And you are supposed to deviate from the ridge at a certain point and take some nice bypasses. But I ended up going right up and over several spires, several spires, not really realizing that's not what you're supposed to do because of the clouds. I was totally engulfed in clouds by that point, which was supposed to burn off and never did. But, you know, it obscured it, it obscured my vision. So at that point, like I'm sitting here, the next fire is, you know, totally dry. Yeah, I'm sure I could have gone up and over it safely. But with shoes I wasn't comfortable in and like I was starting to see verglass again, as I got up higher. I was like, dude, I cannot, absolutely cannot keep pushing this. Like, I definitely have to go down. And there were several, I did have several gullies, which is the only reason I kept going as far as I did on that route, because I knew there was, you know, four or five bailout gullies. And I had to take one of the bailout gullies and, you know, make it work. It wasn't too bad or whatever, but for quite a while up there and really question, you know, like, hey, is this is this goal worth it right now? that the weather's going to improve, you know, considering it's already worse than forecasted and all this. And that is one that I had to sit and make the decision to turn back, but I don't really count it as turning back, considering I just went around to the class two way and then just climbed up the class two route from the other side of the road, which is like way better, way easier. So, yeah, definitely uh, glad I didn't keep going on that one. That one kind of tested my, uh, I'd say, judgment and decision-making and, I'm never afraid to make the call if I need to make the call, but, you know, I keep a pretty high uh, threshold of what will turn me around, though. You know, and that was definitely one, like, conditions like that, that's out of my control. You know, there's a few things I don't play with, and that's pretty much bird glass, lightning, and avalanches, you know. Those are the things I do not take chances with. Those are not in my control. And if I'm going to go for something, you know, something I know is big and spicy, I'm going to go for it you know, knowing what I'm up against, knowing what I'm there for. And if I don't feel confident that I can do it with ease, then it's not something I would, I would go for, but that's on perfect weather days and all that kind of stuff. I'm not somebody to, to push it with the weather. So I guess that would be one of those days. Gotcha. And you, are you, uh, you're in a Garmin or, Am I uh, what do you carry for a device? Like if you carry it a Garmin in reach or, I don't have an inReach. It's just a, kind of an old school, just Garmin GPS. I definitely want to get like a spot locator and that sort of thing, you know, specifically if I keep doing stuff solo. But, you know, these, these days, if I'm doing something like in winter or whatever, I keep a few people around. And, you know, when, when it's like that, I, I feel pretty safe with all so. Gotcha. Yeah, I had a similar experience like that actually on the Plata. It was before... Uh, which one? Oh, okay. Yeah, it was before I had my Garmin, and um, I don't know if you know about Ellingwood Ridge. Of course. Okay, yeah. So basically, 
I tried taking Ellie to the ridge that morning, but the clouds were so thick. I mean, I was like in the clouds. So I'm thinking I'm making great time. And next thing I know, I end up at the same rock that I had seen 40 minutes before. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, wow, that sucks. So I took a different route. The one that I didn't want to take, the standard route, um, was unable to find Ellingwood Ridge in the morning. So when I got up to La Plata, I saw Ellingwood Ridge. It was right there. But, I mean, I could only see sections of it because of the clouds. And the clouds became so thick that I would just get cliffed out on multiple decisions. You know, I'd be walking, 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 and then next thing I know, there's nothing around me, and it's just a sheer drop-off. So I decided to take one of the bailout options down the, um, uh, what would it be? It was the east side. I took a bailout off the east side. I did about 80% of the ridge and then ended up going down into this giant boulder field. And it was wet and it was rainy. And it was just all bad. I mean, I was on boulders for probably four and a half hours and then ended up just listening for water, found the river, followed the river down to the road, and then took the road back to my car. But it's insane what clouds can do. Yeah, definitely. And I heard Ellingwood Ridge. That's not one I really would like to do. Pretty much everybody tells me is that can be like a – almost like one of the great traverses with the route finding and the exposure and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I definitely hear that's one, like you can keep it a uh, under class five with good route finding and stuff like that. Like if you just vary the route just a little bit, you can find yourself in some serious fifth class terrain. So I imagine that was pretty heady up there in those kind of conditions. So I know you've finished all, uh, all the 14ers, but have you done all the four traverses? Yeah, I have uh, done the Great Traverses, and that was definitely uh, wanting to do the the Fearsome Four, as I call them, which is Vestal, even though it does have a Class 2-plus route on the backside, so you know some people don't count it. I do. Uh, Dallas, Tea Kettle, and Jagged. And that was like the best part of wanting to chase the Centennialists, is having the Great, you know, the Great Traverses of the 14. There's four big, intense, you know, mostly fifth-class type climbs and stuff like that, and, you know, being able to find like an upgrade from the great traverses on the centennial list. That was another reason why I really wanted to do it that way. I had had a friend who had done that before, so I knew it was very doable. I didn't go into that totally blind, but yeah, the great traverses, man, I was happy about finishing those in the 14ers. Like I was, that was my goal for like years and years. I was like, Oh man, I can't wait to do the great traverses. They look so fun. They look epic. And yeah, those were some, uh, some of the better times in my life for sure. And which one did you have the most trouble with? Hmm. hmm. Well, my first one was the Creston. And that one actually was like way smoother than I figured. You know, especially from looking at it at Creston Peak, you're like, oh my goodness, this is going to be nuts. But then when you actually go for it, you're like, well, yeah, this is pretty doable. And let's see, the D was my second one. And that was you know, pretty dangerous with a lot of loose rock. And I could see if you could take some spicier lines up the coxcomb or something like that, how I could get pretty intense. But 
for the most part, like if you stay on the line that everybody else takes for the most part, all the loose rock and stuff is going to be knocked down. So I didn't feel like that one was too bad either. Uh, the Bells is another example of that. We did it kind of in a bit of a grapple storm when we were going up the Bells and, you know, had to wait it out a little bit. But it was just grapple, so it didn't totally soak the rock. It just kind of coated it and ended up blowing off and drying pretty quick, so it wasn't a big deal. But the Bells were a really fun one. That was that was my final one there. And that's another one where if as long as you take the lines that everybody else takes, it's very uh, – pretty safe for the most part really because most of the loose rock has been knocked down because so many people going up the same line but if you try to take a variation or don't have ground climbing down then you could get into some big time trouble on the bells traverse really really quick so it's one to be really researched up on then with little bear blanca i mean just that's spicy it i mean that's you know i had no problem with it or anything like that so we'll that and have a great time but there's very little margin of error, and that is, I'll maintain that that's definitely the most real of the great traverses. Little Bear Blanc is very epic, very big, and very fun. Gotcha. So, wait, um, I mean, it was a weird year with like COVID. You have a lot of people saying, you know, restrict your travel. And I'm sure as a solo climber, people have told you know given you their two cents of what they think you should do <laughs> um how do you push past that but at the same time maintain a safe level so that time during the lockdown and everything was definitely an interesting time and i definitely was out you know adventuring doing my thing but the way i did it was not i didn't feel like irresponsible at all because i was always in my neck of the woods you know i had to go to work i had to do all that stuff still so i got all of my food you know right across from my work i got all my gas right at that gas station and anytime i had to drive through a town or something i did not stop i didn't get out of my car anywhere but the trailhead you know didn't see anybody else go up i felt like i was very responsible with that because you know the last thing i want to do is put other people at jeopardy and stuff like that at the same time i'm a i'm a free spirit and i'm not gonna you know stop doing the things i love if there's not a good reason to like if i felt like i was going to directly be exposing people or doing that kind of thing there's no way i would have been doing what i was doing but you know just just with everything considered you know i made the conscious decision to and i wasn't like out as much as i usually was i guess you could say but to go out and I was mostly prospecting, actually, because I'm a topaz prospector as well. Spend a lot of time doing that kind of stuff. So, for the most part, that's what I was doing. But, you know, if I, if I was out there prospecting with anybody else, you know, we always drove separately, maintained our distance, and, you know, did it kind of like that. So, Gotcha. So, I know for me, when I first started on this 14ers journey, I was really super focused on the 14ers, but... As I began to climb, uh, I think it might have been on the Decalibron when I realized, oh, there's harder mountains out here to climb. I'm just focused on the tall ones. Um, When you started exploring the 13ers, and I know that you do even more technical climbing with ropes and harnesses and stuff like that, um, what do you find more enjoyable today? Do you you enjoy the more technical stuff, or do you like the... uh, the Sufferfest. 
I like a good mix. I like to mix it all up. I'll tell you what, I like to go out and I like to hit a class four or five ridge, you know, or something big like that. Then I like to go out and go somewhere, you know, in the San Juans or something like that and do a nice, nice mellow class two on good weather and be able to sit on the summit for two hours and enjoy the views and hang out on a lake on, on the way down and all that. And then, you know, I look forward to winter season where it's just every route is a suffer fest. There's no such thing as not a suffer fest for winter 14ers. Even when you have a trench on most of them, it can be, you know, there's definitely moments. And I like to get some of that in. And then I like to get some of the, you know, nice safe snow spring cooler stuff in and just keep a nice mix of everything. I like rotating between each style. And, you know, even though I like the big adventure stuff, I never, never uh, turn my nose at the nice, fun, easier you know, wilderness experiences. I love those. I love it all equally. I'll tell you that. Gotcha. So I, I know in like the Sawatch, I've found that um, there's a couple peaks that tend to be a little bit easier to summit during the winter. Um, what would you consider some of the easier winter climbs? Well, what, what I always tell people with the winter peaks is I always say, see if it's for you. And what I mean, see if it's for you is go out to Bierstadt, Quandary, and Sherman Winter Variation. Make sure you don't try to take that a uh, Cornish area between Sheridan and uh, Sherman. But, you know, go out, do those three, or the Calibron. You can do the Calibron or the Calibron, whatever. And if you do all of those, and you're like, yeah, this is, I'm having fun, I'm enjoying myself, I can do more than this, that's when you can start trying out some of the Sawatch Peaks and that kind of stuff. Although, like, the Plata in winter can be, you know, on the easier side. There's, there's a few Swatch peaks that are easier too, but I definitely lower amounts of gain. See what it's like to wear snowshoes. See what it's like to wear spikes. Make sure you know how to suffer ice axe. All that's like, you know, prerequisite type of knowledge. And once you've kind of built up a little basic skill set, then you can see about expanding that into the the harder stuff. And me, I'm trying to climb a mile in winter right now, all 59, but I'm in no big uh, hurry to do that. You know, I'm 26 now, and I'm almost at halfway. I'm at 27 to 59, so I'm thinking, you know, early to mid 30s somewhere there. I keep rocking out, you know, five, six a year, and, uh, you know, finish as soon as I can with everything being nice and safe because you really need good conditions windows. Some of the harder peaks can have big-time avalanche danger, so you want to wait for a good year, hit several of them in a good period, and do it like that, so... I'm just kind of letting nature dictate my pace with that. I think that's a really wise way to do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. I know that you mentioned the Sheridan to uh, Sherman, that cornice. Yeah, I, I, I had no idea about it at all. And um, I was just very gung-ho about my 14ers, and I found a buddy to go with me. We snowshoed in, we walked around the – you know, walked around the mountains to get up that little spot where, I mean, it's, it's kind of, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's just, there's like a little snow patch and we just hiked all the way up of it and then walked across to Sherman and the whole thing seemed normal because there was footprints to follow. And, you know, why would you not follow the footprints? <laughs> and uh, it wasn't until we got off the summit of Sherman and I was looking back at our foot tracks and I was thinking to myself, with it warming up like this, like that whole section could have went 
you know what I mean? But like, I didn't do my research on any of that. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, this is the last time that I go on a mountain unprepared with information on stuff like that. What time of year was that? Oh, I can't remember the exact date. I'll have to look it up on my Instagram. Another timestamped, but, uh, I remember we were walking back to the car and, um, I took my snowshoes off maybe two miles early and I, I was post holing a lot on the way back. So it was starting to get a lot softer. I can't remember if it was the beginning of the year though, or at the tail end of it. So you, you were saying that there was an actual, there was a previous set of tracks going across that area. Yeah, there was a previous set of tracks going across that entire cornice area. And it wasn't until I got, cause I, I was thinking it was like the entire mountain, you know, it was like a flat section. But when I got back down on the backside on the bridge, I looked over at it. I was like, that whole fucking thing could slide. Yeah, that's a, that's a good lesson right there too, is, you know, don't always uh, trust your predecessors, you know, don't always trust that whoever went before you knew, you know, where they were going and that sort of thing. Cause there's a lot of examples like that when uh, you get into the snowy months or whatever, like, you know, if it was like, you know, May or, you know, June or something like that, when the snow's kind of glued to the mountains or whatever, you know, then it's a little more, you know, acceptable to take those kind of risks. But like in peak avalanche season, like, you know, a lot of people don't know. They're like, oh, I want to go do grazing tours in winter. Those are some of the easiest ones in winter. But, well, a lot of people don't do the research and don't realize that the slopes of Kelso Mountain have killed people and, you know, are definitely prone to do it again in the wrong conditions. And a lot of people just trudge through that section without having any idea. So, you know, when people do snow climbing, definitely make sure that, uh, research it up, make sure there's not a winter bypass. Cause even some of the easier ones like that section on Sherman and that section on Tories. Yeah. Those are some of the more dangerous sections on some of the winter 14 ers So always, always do research on that for sure. So I know we're coming into uh, a little bit of a different kind of season. We've got our doors open here in Woodland park and, it got to about 80 degrees yesterday because we don't have AC. <laughs> um, with it getting warmer and stuff, you know, we're starting to see a lot more tourists hit the mountains. But I feel like it's almost like the most dangerous time of the year to be uh, exploring some of those mountains that you've been waiting to hit because the cornices, uh, this would be the time for them to fall off, wouldn't it? Right. And that's definitely that's definitely true. So what I do... Every year I go hard, I try to go hard until like March 21st or 20th or whatever happens to be the end of winter. And I usually take a good month to two months off sometimes. Like, you know, I have California on the radar right now. but That's, you know, no cornices, that's a rich climb and all that. But for the most part, I usually wait for that uh, wet slide cycle, as they call it. You know, A lot of people come uh, April or whatever, they want to start hitting coolers right away. And, you know, they're like, well, winter's over, spring's here, you know, it's cooler time. And I'm like, well, most of those coolers, like, you know, I climb them all in mid-May to June or whatever. And you always see wet slide paths, like you see where the coolers had ran previously. And my thinking with that is, well, I don't know exactly when that's going to happen, but I want to wait till after I have some data and people are saying about other coolers, like, hey, the wet slide cycle's happening. You know, this is ran, this is ran, this is ran. And when I'm seeing it's that time, I'm like, okay, 
lot of the stuff's probably getting safer. But before that, cornices are going to fall, wet slides, that kind of stuff. Right now, until about, I'd say the beginning of May, is a pretty dangerous time for that sort of thing. So I'm yeah, absolutely. Like going into this new season, um, just as a community, like if you were to address the 14er community, what would be your your advice? In terms of safety or just the transition? Just, just, just like basically making it to May, you know what I mean? If you're willing to take those risks, uh, like is, do you have oh, – okay. I, I, know, I know you have a lot of uh, – experience with colliers and i i don't um what would, what would you advise people climbing them well i would say that probably only people with a good amount of experience of those type of things and people who are watching the the weather seeing the highs and the lows and all that making informed decisions and even that sort of thing doesn't give you you know all the knowledge for that i would advise uh, for the most part, people to still stick to ridges and, you know, some, you know, you can do some slopes routes and that kind of stuff, but I would probably stay away from the couloirs unless people, I'm sure there's probably going to be somebody who's way more experienced with that than me listening, like, well, I'm going to go do this. And that's totally fine if they know, you know, the risk and this and that. But I would advise the general public probably to definitely <laughs> stick to ridges, that sort of thing, and keep a close eye on temperatures, conditions, and conditions reports of like nearby couloirs, couloirs in certain ranges. And once you hear that that wet slide cycle has happened for the couloirs and that sort of thing, then they firm up and they get a lot safer. And I would just advise the general public probably to wait till then. And keep in mind it's mud season, and uh, a lot of people are like, oh, it's mud. They look up at the peaks, They're like, oh, it's starting to melt. And this and that, like, still bring snowshoes. Just go ahead and bring them. You'd hate to drive all that way and have to turn around. Just didn't bring snowshoes. So. That's uh, that's probably my best advice with that sort of thing. That is really good advice because yeah, I think a lot of people really don't even consider the mud at all. Right, it's, it can be miserable, man. It, can be it really can. And oh man, I think you'd get a kick out of this. But I bought some Sportivas because I thought they'd be good like all year round hiking boots. But um found out they're more for like ice climbing because they have the little rand on the back to clip on your um your crampons and i didn't realize that when you're when you're when you've got your feet below the snow all day you know you're climbing up these peaks the toes actually release a lot of heat because they're they're assuming that you're going to be activating the toes all day so they don't want them to overheat (laughs) right so, yeah, I found that a little bit funny. I was like, wow, I dropped a good amount of money on something I didn't really want. <laughs> well, you could definitely you'll, – you'll definitely come a, come a time where you have plenty of use for them or whatever. You'll be glad you bought them one day. Oh, yeah, definitely, especially seeing some of the stuff you did in, like, Lake City and Uray, you know, just the ice climbing side of things. Uh, I think that's kind of part of my next adventure. Yeah, man, it's 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 a real blast. I feel like ice is uh, even funner than rock. I'm still somewhat new at it or whatever, but I've definitely fallen, fallen in love with it so far. So, but sounds like those boots you could also, I'm sure you could probably just uh, winter mountaineering and you know, all that kind of stuff in them too. So, 
Oh yeah, I especially throw some of those uh, winter um, gators on. Yep, definitely. Alrighty, man. Well, I really appreciate you uh, giving me the time of your day to just talk adventures, talk at mountains, and uh, I just feel like uh, my community of listeners are going to be much better climbers now. Hey, man, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And uh, you know, to all your listeners, go out there and chase your dreams. Whatever it is you're after in the mountains, I mean, or what, whatever it is you're after, you can probably find it in the mountains if it's, if it's good and good and true. So go out and uh, make it happen, everybody. Alrighty, man. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. All right. Later. Bye.